Today, we have a really special co-founding guest team on the show. It's not every day that you get to have a childhood idol on your show, but we have the privilege of being joined by Bodie Miller, a two-time world champion skier, a six-time medalist in the Olympics with a goal to his name, and thought of by many to be one of the best skiers of all time. We are also joined by Andy Wirth, who is one of the members of the small team that really created the Icon Pass and one of the largest, deepest rosters of ski mountains in the United States that any skier would know. Now this team is on a mission to bring a truly innovative brand to the ski category, which is a product category that has been stagnant for decades. Some of the key things that stuck out to me in this pod were that large ski companies like Fisher and Head had manufacturing processes that still resemble that of 50 and 60 years ago. And that lack of innovation in new manufacturing processes is what's really hampering innovation in ski products and keeping prices high for consumers. The second thing that really stuck out to me is that Bodie and Andy have been able to assemble a world-class team of skiers, product innovators, and they've even been able to partner up with a manufacturing partner that is quite literally upending the traditional ski market with a better user experience at a lower overall cost. The best way for me to break it down is that these guys are doing for skis what Warby Parker did for glasses, taking an old stodgy category, getting a new flair of excitement in a direct consumer format. And lastly, stay tuned till the end to hear from Bodhi on how his Olympic career in skiing is analogous in many ways to his experience in becoming a founder of Peak Ski Company. And now, on to the show. Before we kick it off, I always love to, to kind of start with, give us your best one-liner about Peak Ski. The least important thing about Peak are the skis, but they're critical. All right, I like it. That, that's, a, that's an interesting line. I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, so, Bodhi, to kick it off here, I'm, I'm sure if you know, people are into skiing or have followed the Olympics, they've certainly heard of you. But can you talk to us a little bit about your background and what kind of inspired you and led you to co-found Peak Ski? Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, I skied my whole life. It was really kind of my babysitter. I was homeschooled as a young student and uh, was able to ski at Cannon Mountain um, every day, most, most of my childhood. And uh, just really, I kind of just loved the sport as it was. And I played everything else. And I loved, like I said, competed in tennis and soccer and everything else. But um, from a really young age, I just pretty much only wanted to be a World Cup Olympic champion skier. And you know, I think that was to my benefit. Obviously, was pretty determined and single-minded about it and, and had a bunch of success, sort of, you know, pretty, pretty lucky in lots of ways. But, you know, in the end, was able to capitalize on, on what I brought to the table. And, you know, a lot of my ski life and career was around testing equipment and trying to figure out what worked for me. Um, I think a lot of skiers tend to take what they have or what equipment they get and try to use it. That, that didn't really work for me. So, um, you know, I was, I created value in my contracts and to try to make some money by really self-educating and figuring out, you know, how to do that well. And yeah, it was, it was a huge, it's a huge win for me because I, I was exposed to all these, the greatest engineers on the planet with each company that I was with, with K2, then Fisher, then Rosamelt, then Atomic, then Head, and, um, so, and they were open and, you know, I was working with them and trying to build good skis. So it was really like a, a tradesman's education in the space. And within that, I saw a lot of the kind of hurdles that they faced, a lot of really awesome, really smart people, but there, there's a process problem and there's 
funding problems and the margins in the hard goods side of business are, are not super strong. So I kind of came out of all that at the end of my career, kind of skeptical that it, it, it could be done really well, but knowing that I could contribute in, in a really meaningful way to a new ski brand or whatever, I thought, you know, and when Andy and I first started kicking the idea around, it was pretty obvious really, really quickly that there was a gap in the market, right? Which is strange because it's a really old market. It's really well-developed, it's global, a um, bunch of really smart people. But a lot of the people who are the big companies we kind of talked about before we started recording, it's kind of a dozen to 15 kind of main players globally take up the market share. And uh, they, they're they stuck in their sales channel, right? They have distributors and retailers. They, they can't afford to go a different way. They can't undercut pricing and they can't. So, you know, and then there's a lot of little boutique companies that have sprung up over the last decade, decade and a half that are, um, you know, really creative, but don't have that sort of industrial background of understanding the business and really knowing the engineering behind it. And they do a lot of cool stuff, but they're kind of, you know, they're, they're less, I would say, mainstream or knowledgeable in, in certain areas of how to make a ski really work for a, a big group of people. So Andy and I kind of, you know, begrudgingly, I would say, um, you know, took it on. And really it was more of like a, call it like a thesis. We were like, okay, we think this, this has something, but we're not going to like dive in head first yet. And then over the course of a year or so, um, you know, as, as the scope of, of what the potential was with, with Beeler and that side of it, I think was kind of our, that was kind of the linchpin of the decision because what we're doing is fine, but there's lots of ways we could be productive um, in our lives. And this is kind of a smaller, you know, somewhat terminal, right? What we're doing now, I don't think is scalable to a million pairs of skis as it stands. It, it wouldn't wouldn't be uh, practical or, or feasible um, from a logistics standpoint, right? Direct to consumer, unless you're selling paper towels, it, it's pretty rough. If you really want to have consumer feedback, you, you have a sales team of like, you know, 400,000 people. So, um, but it was cool. It was really fun to see, you know, Andy's sort of background in, in, in the ski world was at the highest level and mine was at the highest level, but on two very different ends of the spectrum. And um, yeah, when we, when we started really vetting, where, where's our, where's our pain points? Where's the sticking points? What's scary about this? Um, we had answers to all the questions. So we kind of went in after being skeptical and, and pretty, um, you know, I would say reluctant to jump into the hard goods side, which has never been appealing to either one of us. Um, yeah, we, we, I think had a really good positive attitude. And I think because we had answers, we, you know, we knew enough to really dig into, we, we've self-vetted, right? Like normally you'd ask other people like poke holes in this, like, you know, give me, give me what you think we're missing. And I think, you know, we were really confident that we weren't really missing anything or, or not much. So that, that allowed us to really attract great people because we had answers, they, they would come in and say, okay, well, what about this? What about this? And we had answers to those. And, um, you know, the, the biggest thing about any startup, as you know, is, is populating your, your staff and your crew with, with really knowledgeable, super slick, um, people that are essentially overqualified for what they do. And that's, that's what we were able to do. Um, so it, it's been, you know, it's been really short relative to everything I've done, right? Normally, you know, it's five years or whatever is, is kind of how you, you know, build something, but we're, we're in year two now and really psyched about where we've gotten to. And they have a lot of really good momentum and a team that's ready to, to sort of take it on. Well, you mentioned that Andy kind of comes from a very different side of the world in the skiing world. Andy, you know, in, in getting to know you, 
you know, your work with creating Icon Pass, which I think anyone who's in the ski industry is very aware of or enjoys skiing, uh, you know, it's probably the, the pass you need if you want to go skiing. Um, so can you talk to us about your background and kind of what led you here, what your inspiration was as well? In my case, I come to it from the business side of things, still loving uh, where I lived and the skiing and the like. Raised my family at Steamboat, Colorado, continued to work in the business development side of things, quickly got involved in uh, being involved in multiple ski areas, uh, the canyons in Utah, uh, Kevin Lee Ski Resort, and started getting pulled into many transactions, basically call that strategic side of the business kind of early stage. Advanced through a number of transactions and, and the like, um, was able to ha had this great opportunity to work with KSL Capital Partners, a private equity group based out of Denver, and um, I did play a role as one of many on on building what was not what we now know as Altera com Ski Company or Mountain Company, excuse me. And the past product is is the Icon Pass. When we snapped the line on that, in the neighborhood of six to seven point five billion dollar company, and that enabled me to. Uh, take on some other things in, in my life that I sought to be fair to say that, uh, you know, I was able to hit the retirement button a little bit early where things had worked out well. At the same time, I had, was deeply enmeshed with the U.S. ski team, I was on the board of directors of the U.S. ski team, and this is where Bodie and I got to know each other, was when Governor Sandoval of Nevada and Governor Brown at that time of California asked me to play a role in bringing the Winter Olympics back to that area, I was able to get back in touch with Bodie and say, hey, um, I'd, I'd like to involve you in this because you're a brilliant person and a legendary name in that order. We got to work with each other, and that was our first effort, other than skiing, um, that to work with each other on something more meaty than just skiing and, and the like. Advance it to what I mentioned earlier was, uh, you know, basically retiring. We ended up um, being two retired guys living about 15 minutes away from each other. We spent a lot of time together. Um, and in that time frame, honestly, a lot of it was work on the U.S. ski team board of directors. How do we improve, if fix if not improve, improve if not fix the U.S. ski team? That led to ongoing conversations. It was clear that I got to know his mind a great deal more than his his name and his fame. I got to know his mind and his capabilities were, you know, I think surprising to many, not to me nowadays. But his skill capabilities were beyond his his legend, the legend and lore of his ski racing background and, and success. When I think about your, your business, in many ways, I, I like to equate it to like what Warby Parker did for glasses, right? You're, you're making it more accessible, better price point, bringing unique, interesting design to a ski category that's been pretty boring for the better part of 30 years. Um, but to your point, the way in which you make this possible is through thinking about the reinvention of the manufacturing process. So can we start there? Can we talk about how you're reinventing the manufacturing process? Yeah, I mean, as we sort of talked about before, the, the manufacturing process for building skis is, is, has been pretty stable for, for 50 plus years, you know, 60 maybe, where you, you lay the skis out, you build a mold. So it's a metal, you know, routered out shape that is originally was from drawings and then CAD came along and now it's computerized. But the concept is the same. If you want to produce, um, the volume of skis that you need as a major player, you're not just building one mold for one size of one model, you're building 10 of those because it takes about 45 minutes to build a ski in the typical way. You, you lay the edges in, the base, you lay these layers up, then you then you put it into this press and 
the press squishes it really with a ton of pressure and heat and heats it up and the glue melts and glues everything together. They cool it down and they take it out. And then they've automated a lot of the finishing process over the last, call it, you know, 20, 25 years. But that still takes a whole other step. But at that time, there's new skis going back in the press. The press is kind of the bottleneck and that's you know, 30 to, to 40 minutes, somewhere in there. With that as your sort of bottleneck, there's, there's just not a whole lot you can do. It takes, if you want to build a million pairs of skis, do the numbers, right? Our, our press that we have in our, in our shop in Bozeman is, is one of the best presses on the planet. And we said, look, there, there's been crazy advancements in material engineering, right? Material sciences has moved uh, quantum leaps forward in the last 30 years with military applications, aerospace, all that. They just haven't been able to be used in the ski world effectively because of the process. So, you know, when I first met Matthias a year, you know, decade ago or more, um, I, I went, you know, I, I knew what he did um, right away. We talked about that. I went to his his facility in Hallback, Germany, and I, I walked in there. I, I just was, I basically wanted to quit ski racing and, and get hired. I didn't care if I was a janitor or anything else. Like when you go there, it's, it's one of the coolest things you've ever seen. I mean, talking like, futuristic next level stuff where these little pistons all automated and things assembling these pieces that are too small to see and welding different parts together and all raw material goes in one end of these machines. In some cases, you know, another machine and then it comes around and links up with this machine. And then at the end, they're coming out in boxes, packaged, ready to go. And it's it's a light, it's every light switch and light socket we have in America is built on their, their, their technology, their machines. You know, it was one of those things where I looked at the process and I said, Matthias, we have to build skis this way. Like everything that would it take to build next generation skis, you already do. Like, yeah, we have to modify the machines to make it work. And then, you know, prefab some things the way that you prefab, you know, in different machines that come in. But there was nothing scary about it. I talked to a few of his engineers who, because they're such an amazing company, they attract some of the smartest engineers on the planet. I mean, really the, the top, top. Um, it's probably, you know, NASA, really crazy private sector, military, and then Beeler. It's, it's in that order. So I talked to them and they were like, yeah, this is everything that you're talking about is all really simple stuff. Stuff we have just right here. Machinery already does this. It's just a matter of, designing and, and sort of implementing the most efficient, most cost-effective, but best end result uh, combinations. And the other big piece that I should mention, I'm sure Andy will touch on is, is recyclability, right? When you glue, when you sandwich laminate glue everything together, it's designed to resist breaking apart. That's part of it. It's designed to resist weather erosion, all that stuff. So there's nothing to do with them. You can't recycle them. They go into landfills, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand tons each year and they just sit there and they're nasty they're toxic the, the resins and stuff are nasty it takes a few hundred years for them to start breaking down so we wanted to keep in mind the ability to take them apart and recycle as much as we could too and all these pieces as i said in the beginning about peak in general we had all these sort of pain points so like, okay what about this and and because i've been thinking about it for for 20 years and because i've been to be alert and talk to the engineers I really did have answers to, to all the, you know, the sort of typical questions and the things that would be scary or threatening to take this on. And it is shocking, obviously, when you when you're in a global industry that's as developed as skiing um, to be to be like, wait, this is us. This is Andy and I <laughs> who are going to we're going to move this thing like, you know, because it, it's it's an order of magnitude different. Right. It's but there isn't really a limping way in between. Right. What they have done is limp. They attach computers to the presses now and they've 
automated certain aspects of, of the finishing process. Those are like the, the baby steps that you would think would ultimately get you to where we're going, but there's too big a jump. There's just people who try to baby steps are just going to fall into that gap there. You need to take a step back, rethink it, and then just be able to, to have the confidence to execute on the, the full package without really a whole lot of intermediary steps. And that's why it hasn't been done. It also takes the partnership of Beeler, obviously, which is which is critical. If Andy and I were trying to build that machine, we'd, we'd be old and bearded before we got the first piston to work. Um, just the, the technology that they're capable of, of putting together and the engineers are just, yeah, that's why they, they do, you know, 40% of metal parts in cars. They're just, that's, that's really the, the critical piece. Well, I love bringing the outside minds to the process. And Andy, I know there's so much we could dive in on the manufacturing process. But the other thing I really want to make sure we hone in on is the design elements of the ski, right? Because that's truly your differentiator to the consumer. They don't care about how it's manufactured. They want to know what makes this better. So what are those key elements that you think differentiate and set you all apart from all of the other established ski companies that are out there? These are skis that are developed using his knowledge gleaned from racing and that I'm not answer your, the core of your question just now, um, for the core of the recreational market in the U.S., Europe, and beyond, you know, basically call that 3.2 million of the 4 million total skis every year. But the keyhole basically um, is something Bodie gleaned from a race ski that he was on and had it in the back of his mind. And thankfully with Peak, coupled with a, a couple of hundred hours on the phone with design engineers, we put that into the ski, and really what it is is basically a 9 by 11 millimeter ellipse shape that's cut out of a, a t uh, aluminum alloy layer that's in the top sheet of the ski, just below the top sheet of the ski. And what it allows is, is very soft, forgiving front part of the ski that allows for turn initiation. Again, for all skiers, Bodie will talk about that, ski racers all the way down to day two, never ever skiers. Turn initiation is quite easy. Usually skis have the same trait or characteristic from tip to tail. And if a ski that you're on tends to initiate his turn very easily, that means the rest of the turn is going to be soft, forgiving, and the ski is going to be sloppy. It's not the case. The keyhole, based on exactly where it's located, then moves as you load up the ski in the center part of the turn and beyond where you get the torsional rigidity, which basically is, is this motion. And that torsional rigidity allows the ski to hold an edge very, very well. So right now, I've just described to folks that are skiers, and hopefully those that aren't, that can appreciate and understand that this is unlike the design of any other ski that's out there, because it's got two traits, characteristics in one ski. When we think about the fact that you're a direct-to-consumer model, and again, if, if you've ever bought skis, right, it's this overwhelming experience where you walk up into a store, they have a wall of skis from seven different years, hundreds of different models. Um, and it can be a pretty burdensome process going through with a salesperson to try and figure out what's going to work for you. And oftentimes you don't even have a way of really trying it out, right, until you actually get it to the mountain. So there are certainly many challenges with that process. So direct consumer, I think, makes a ton of sense. Now, you guys have driven some pretty incredible traction, thousands sold in your first year, millions of dollars in sales, growing really nicely. Can you talk about, it seems like PR has been a really quintessential piece of that. Are there other pieces to the equation to help drive growth going forward? And if so, what are those? We're not only launching a new brand, a new ski, Grandis with Bodie's name, it's very well known. They're not race skis for the core of the, the market. We're also at the same time at scale, uh, kind of uh, introducing a new means by which folks can buy skis in contrast to what you just mentioned. 
Now the, the ski shop and, this, and they're all terrific. How much value they add to that process is very, it varies from shop to shop and it can be confusing to folks. It's important to note, by the way, we've developed tools and means on the website and more to help people move smoothly and efficiently, maybe not unlike your comparison to Warby, the tools and devices they have, and they have excellent tools, how to select the right ski of the models we've had for where you ski, how often you ski, what other skis you like. And there's a, there's a simplified process, so it takes away that overwhelming aspect of a wall full of skis. Um, you know, you, you know, there's there's zero doubt that there the ski shops add value in, in some cases, in other cases maybe interfere, maybe create confusion or, or what have you. Um, underneath that all is a simple, uh, simple to understand guarantee because we're at the same time we're asking people to move away from a buying process they might have used for years, and make it real simple. Try our skis. You can ski them two hours, twenty days. You have thirty day money back guarantee. No no questions asked. let's talk about that European expansion and Bodhi, I'd love to hear from you um, having skied kind of across the world and, and see these different markets. What do you think are some of the challenges of entering and selling into the EU market and how does it differ in terms of kind of that skier and buying process from that of a U.S. based skier? The challenges are primarily for our, our digital marketing assassin. They, they, they consume media and, and marketing differently in Europe. So it's the birthplace of skiing, even though, I don't really agree with that. I think it's probably invented in China uh, several thousand years ago. But um, and other people argue the Scandinavian impact. But um, clearly, they have a culture. You know, the Alps. They have a culture around it, and they they're they're more educated in general. But I think they're also more um, a little bit more stuck in terms of their brand their brand loyalty um, over there. You just don't see people switch off very easily. I think my name and, and the reviews we have are, are enough to get people to switch, but really it's about touching those people at the right time and the right place to get them to give it a shot. We have, as we call it, like different selling points, right? Different different weapons we can use to to get those sales. But um, yeah, in the case of, of Europe, it is it's quite a bit different, honestly, than the US. I mean, the US is is uh, the, the gear guides are really critical in Europe. I don't think they are as much. Um, I don't think that's really a thing over there. The way print media and digital media is it's just not, doesn't play nearly the role it does here. But um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's it's gonna be interesting to see. Uh, and I think for, for Tracy, for the rest of our team, interesting to, to learn, right? We have hyper experienced people on our team. It's, these aren't like straight out, <laughs> straight out of the, you know, the, the grow room. They're gonna know how to pivot and how to adjust and how to move the needle, but it is it is unique. I mean, you know, we're we're selling a, a product that is bought more often in Europe than in the US. But again, how do we touch those people and how do we convince them to, to sell it? I think for them, the 30-day money back guarantee is gonna be massive in the US. Most people didn't even understand well, somehow we were speaking the wrong language or whatever. People did not understand that. They're like, Yeah, can I demo the skis? I'm like, well, it's it's a 30-day money back guarantee. So it's a 30-day demo. So yes, and they were like, no, but I want to demo them. I was like, all right, well, no, you're cut off then. If you can't understand, <laughs> if you don't get that, I don't know how to help you. You're not our customer. Um, but in Europe, I think they'll get that. I think they'll understand it. Um, they do less demo days in Europe than they do in the U.S., uh, which is interesting. I think sales channels in general are different, but that's going to be an interesting one for me to see over there. They're they're just super versatile, and that's really what you deal with over there. A lot of high traffic runs and people who might start the day on groomers and they'd be like, okay, now it's all chundered up. And then they're playing around on the side of the trail. And that's, 
there's not many skis that, that, that can compare to ours in that space. You know, on a perfect rumor day, there's lots of great skis out there that are gonna make you feel like a hero, right? <laughs> but it's when things go a little weird or there's the variance or how big of a range of conditions um, and, and skier types to the, does the ski really, really perform at a top level. And that's where I think the European market will, will really appreciate what we're doing. Well, and one other thing just to hit on there that I, I do think is important is you've simplified the buying process by being very clear about your SKUs, right? And your SKUs being your unique products. There's so many <laughs> products out there. And by actually simplifying the category and saying, here's kind of your big powder skis, here's your narrower Northeast skis for, you know, skiing on more ice, it, it makes it accessible uh, in a way that I think is really unique. And I think that's actually a really big part of your value prop. And when I look at the industry as a whole, you know, I do think there's been this growing perception that it's a very inaccessible sport because of the price points of, t you know, ski tickets and even just going to the mountain, right? Everything from parking to lunch will cost you a million dollars. Um, so, buddy, I, I would like to hear from you if you have any thoughts on, you know, you've always been non-status quo when it comes to kind of the, the ski world. What do you think can be done across the industry? And I think you're part of the solution with Peak Ski. But what can we do across the industry to really start moving in a way where it does feel more accessible to a broader audience? Andy and I, one of our businesses that we were working on prior to launching Peak, and we still do, but it's a bit on hold right now, is Alpine X. And they have a, an indoor ski, learn to ski, but also advance in skiing um, concept that pairs around sort of family you know, recreation, vacation, lots of, lots of activities, other sports, but then get people funneled into that. That partners really well with another company that I helped with, um, Snowbond, which is like a synthetic treadmill learn to ski, where you can really take somebody from having never skied before to being able to go up and, and confidently ski a blue run. Those are critical to expanding our base. The pain points in skiing are all over the place. Like we could, could go through those if we wanted, but it's, it hurts all over. But if you do have more volume of people joining in, then the growth that you want to show on your balance sheet doesn't have to come from extracting more cash from the existing customers. Um, it can go from spreading people out over the season and giving people discounts on other times to make it more accessible um, that maybe aren't on peak times where you're, you're sort of wealthy elite who want to go on their vacations can still do that, but they're, you're just getting more customers out on the hill. You know, I think the equipment side of it, this will have ultimately a pretty significant trickle down effect across the globe. Being able to reduce the cost, recyclability, which will reduce the cost, speed, all have an impact on the end price. And my goal is to is to be able to integrate binding eventually and integrate binding to get the boot thing sorted out. And there's, there's kind of a, a logical path forward to, to getting it, letting somebody get a really kick-ass setup boots binding skis for for in that five to six hundred dollar range and right now that's you're not finding that anywhere for really you know barely under two grand um you know and that's so if you can cut the cost by you know a third or you know two-thirds um i think you'll have a big impact some of it is andy's side of the business it's lunches and stuff like that you know the, the conglomerate and the aggregation of all the different aspects of the ski world getting under one roof kind of does open the door for more accessibility economically, but it hasn't really been that yet. But I think that's the direction it will go when you start to look for new customers, right? You on off season times, you know, you're, you're going to want to package things together. I mean, lunch coupons, right? That I used to have that back at Cannon Mountain of the day, you buy, you know, it was like five bucks and you got 
really what if you bought it with cash was you know it's really only for locals but like if you bought it with cash it was like 14 15 bucks but with this coupon you just went and got got your stuff i think there's lots of stuff in that space that will come into play as the market broadens but you know there there's the sticking points are you know we're addressing one of them but i think it, it's a kind of a critical one right equipment and excitement you need to drive people to the sport and you need to make it accessible economically, at least at that level. And that's where Alpine X, Snowbond, and Peak are really going to hit that that market right there. And then the rest is kind of, unfortunately, out of our control, but I think it'll happen. Two things that we haven't talked about. One is a licensing model, because I actually think that's a really interesting lever to grow your business. And the second one is based on that, what are your thoughts on you know what success looks like over the next kind of 18 to 24 months? First and foremost, we have a very clear line of sight. We know what we are seeking to accomplish on all three. There's others, but we'll stay focused on those. Number two is we have good counsel. We have good the ability to define and lock down the IP. Critically, we have great development partners. We've talked about Beeler. And then lastly, we have a team now that is very capable of executing on all of those initiatives but you really have the core ski division. It's all under one company, right? It's Peak Ski Company. But you have the core of this, the ski division, which is what, we're, what we have in the marketplace right now. But these other three initiatives, they drop down into secured IP, working with world-class development partners and, and a great team that's able to implement. And now we have a much clearer line of sight on the calendar. And so when you ask 12, 18, 24 months, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months from now, I'm actually quite confident we'll have two or three licensed license partners in play with Peak Locate. Um, I, I think that's really impressive and really smart. And at the end of the day, right, it's almost like the craft beer movement, right? It, it, the big established players really had no innovation for 40, 50 years until folks came along and said, wait, we can do things differently. And I think you guys coming in and challenging that status quo, um, it's going to turn a lot of eyes and lead to them wanting to license that same type of technology and manufacturing process. So, I think you're on the right path there. And for those who are listening, that opens up a lot of really unique uh, revenue opportunities that are very high margin, very low capital intensity. So I think that's very smart. Um, We'd love to wrap up here. Bodhi, when you think about your career as an Olympian, uh, if you wouldn't mind kind of connecting some of the similarities in experience of being an Olympian, you know, ski athlete to being an entrepreneur and a founder, uh, can you talk about what your experience has been like and where you see some of those crossovers? There's a million different paths honestly they're both right? like if you uh if you're independently extremely wealthy you can just keep throwing money at the problem um if you're super talented as a young athlete you can just go out there and, and do what everyone else is doing um and just be better because you're just better uh in my case i think i was fortunate to grow up sort of a counterculture childhood and and learned what it took to get good at stuff for me it was a bit more um I always joke, like, I'm like, you know, on a, on a good looking scale, I'm like a, a, a seven, which is perfect, right? Like you, you have to work hard. You can't take anything for granted. You gotta like, you know, it's, it's gonna come down to personality. It's gonna come down to, to determination or, or wearing somebody down. You're not just gonna walk in the room and, and all, all the girls are clamoring for you. So and that was my ski world. It was like, I had to figure things out. I really had to bust ass and it took determination and, and kind of a work ethic and an ability to, accurately assess myself right so self-assessment and then and then you know humility in that process as well like you can't can't glaze over shit that you're just bad at you got to figure out how do i minimize the impact of what i suck at 
and how do I maximize the stuff that I'm good at? And really that's, that's business, right? Like you, it, you know, yes, termination, um, you're going to step in it sometimes. I and mean, that's just how it goes, but thinking things through really being proactive with the ownership of your decisions and not being reactive. Um, but it obviously helps, you know, and, and I would say that, you know, there's a direct correlation between picking a sport like skiing, where I was independent. I was the only one out there. There was no other, I didn't depend on other athletes. I didn't, and it was a clock. It was no judges. I didn't have to match someone else's version of what was good on that day um, to what we're doing, right? Like we, we, we need to have our ownership of our own path, right? In this case, we're direct consumers. If we do it well, if we build good skis and we tell people about them and we're priced competitively, like we kind of own our process, right? Like it's like we, we can reduce the barriers that people would have to, to jumping on board pretty effectively. And I think we're doing that. So there's, there was a lot of correlations, honestly, I, when I sort of moved more into business, which was certainly during my, my world cup career, I found it, uh, analogous all over the place. It was like thought, creativity, imagination, execution, you know, and how, and then building a team, how do you communicate the ideas? Cause a lot's lost in translation. Um, and I think, you know, those are all really, you know, they're, they're critical for anything you're doing, but certainly, <laughs> In, in business, that's the that's the stuff that leads to failure or success. I'd also say that uh, wiping out is very much a part of both processes. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you're gonna step in it. You just gotta know when you do, it's not time to hang your head and, and whine about it for three months, right? You, you just, you assess and you get what you can out of it and then you crank forward. And that's, you know, we have a team full of people who have done that over the course of their careers and, and we don't we don't waste time. That's the other thing, like wasting time as an athlete, right? Too many people waste too much time and ultimately that ends up being the deal breaker. You know, for me, I was, I had plenty of crashes, right? If I'd, if I'd moped even for 15 minutes after every crash, that's thousands of hours <laughs> of moping around. So I had to get pretty good at just shaking it off and, and moving on to the next thing. Well, Bodie, Andy, thank you both so very much for your time today. Thank you for your insights. And as a fellow skier, thank you. And I appreciate you for bringing innovation to the category that, again, to my own self, felt like it had a lack thereof for the last 20, 30 years. So it's really exciting to see what you're all working on. Um, and for those who are interested, you could go and check them out on Republic and become an investor today. Thank you, everyone, for your time today.